Amen, amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn or swipe to the book of Exodus. That's the second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 to 14 is where we're going to be looking. And before we get there and while you're turning there, one of the things I've learned as a father is that parenting involves navigating your kids' impulses. Navigating your kids' impulses. What do I mean by this? You see, children do things without thinking. So sometimes, hypothetically speaking, it might sound like parenting sounds like this. Emma, quit messing with that. Emma, did you ask? Emma, put the laptop down, hypothetically speaking. Let's say this child is named Emma. Sometimes they get upset, and their impulse is to let these feelings boil up and over. And so hypothetically speaking, let's call this other child N. Wood, just to keep some anonymity, okay? The letter N. Wood. Maybe it sounds like this. It's okay. Just breathe. I, it's okay. It's okay. Okay, quieter. It's okay. Just breathe. It's okay. It's okay. And would, hypothetically speaking. So much of parenting is navigating your kids' impulses and the reactions that they have when they're upset or when they can't control what's around them in their environment, or when they leap before looking and act without thinking. So much of this is just natural. It's part of growing up. It's part of the way their brain is developed. These reactions are natural, but we remind them, we calm them each and every time because what we're trying to do is train them and invite them toward healthier responses. The impulse says, touch this, mess with that, do this, hit that person, just act. And in parenting, we say, that impulse may feel right and natural, but let's redirect you over here and train you toward a healthier response. You get what I'm saying? Your impulse to let your emotions boil over and burn out on other people are natural. You're allowed to feel your feelings. But at some point, parenting steps in and redirects this boiling over. And we say, okay, now it's time to breathe. And we're going to try to train you toward a healthier response. But it's not easy for adults either, is it? Some of us don't like to wait on instruction or wait for permission from God or anyone else. So we want to look and leap before we want to leap before we look. You get what I'm saying? How do you respond when the unexpected happens? What's your impulse, your reaction? When you get that phone call, when your car doesn't start, what's your reaction? Whoa. You're frustrated? How about when you lose control? When the things around you start to spiral out, you're just calm and serene and you're instantly at bliss, right? Your blood pressure grows up, goes up. 
How about when you're upset, you wouldn't be like this small child that is remaining anonymous that has these things boil up and over and you just spiral out, right? We've got all of our impulses and our reactions figured out. What we do in situations is respond perfectly healthily, right? Of course not. It takes time, it takes awareness, it takes reminding, it takes practice to move our impulses toward healthier responses. This is what we're going to talk about this evening. And when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, God, as a loving parent, as a compassionate mother, as a um, gracious father, redirects us and says, just breathe and let's take the next step. When we find ourselves out of control, God reminds us, it's okay, let me handle this. When we find ourselves upset and spilling out, He says, be still. To let God be God and to allow ourselves to be led through difficulty and frustration and hardship is the task that you'll never graduate from Because every new set of circumstances is an opportunity to let God redirect you as a loving parent, just like we do for our children, so that your impulses can be brought to a healthier response, and then you're walking with Him through the valley of the shadow. Nowhere else in Israel's history is there such a poignant invitation to move from impulse to trust as there is in Exodus. It is so famous that it becomes the paradigm of salvation. It's so powerful that it forms a people, it begins a people, it liberates a people, and it becomes the paradigm through which we ourselves experience what it's like to be led through the waters on dry ground and to be brought out into victory and freedom. And so we're going to look here at Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to see at least two impulses that mirror impulses that you might experience when you feel at a loss or between a rock and a hard place. And then we're going to see two invitations of a loving parent redirecting us toward a healthier response and finding that, oh, we can walk through this because we're not alone. So just to bring you up to speed before we read this brief passage in a broader story, you may have heard Moses say, let my people go. Have you heard this? So Moses has been crying out to God. God has raised him up and he walks right up to Pharaoh who's enslaving the Hebrew people and he says, enough's enough. Get us out of here. And Pharaoh says, no. So what God does is bring about this disorder of creation to get their attention. And so those are known as plagues. And Pharaoh still says, no. And then finally, what's known as the Passover. Have you heard of the Passover? The Passover is the last straw. And every firstborn that didn't have this marking or trust in God was dead And that got Pharaoh's attention. So instead of saying, nah, he said, okay, get out of here. But somewhere in their circuitous journey out of Egypt, Pharaoh changes his mind. 
And God lets it happen. And Pharaoh changes his mind so much that he sends all his best and brightest. He says, go get them. I want them back. I'm mad, actually. And I'm going to go chase them down. So here's Pharaoh's best and brightest hot on the heels of this people that have been enslaved that are learning how step by step to navigate a new territory. This new God who's leading them somewhere And all of a sudden, they find themselves at the shore of the Red Sea. Uncertainty is before them, and their enemies are behind them, and they are freaked. So we pick up our story in Exodus 14. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, Pause. Show of hands if this is you. You're between the devil and the deep blue sea, and you're saying, God, are you serious? All of that for this? Verse 11. So then they do what all good people do. They yell at their leader. (laughs) They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us just serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. This is the word of God for the people of God, from the people of God, and we say thanks be to God. Because this is real talk. And it leads us to our first impulse. Too often, we let our circumstances tell us what God is like. You're between a rock and a hard place. The worst has happened. And you might, like the Israelites, say something like this. This isn't going my way, so God must not be on my side. Okay, this isn't what I want, so God must not give me what I need. This is a terrible situation, so God is not good. This is too big, so God can't work in this. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to nod your head. But this is a temptation. Every new set of circumstances and difficulties. And whether you're a nine-year-old messing or a seven-year-old that's upset, can we all just admit that we've been in a situation where we say, God, are you serious? This is just too much. There's trouble behind me. There's uncertainty in front of me. And too often we let our circumstances tell us what God is like. And this is a dangerous game because you know what changes every day and every week? Our circumstances. You know what doesn't change? The steadfast, compassionate, surrounding and sustaining love of the God who is love and reveals Himself in a shepherd who walks beside us even through death. But too often, if we're honest with ourselves, because we didn't get that job, God doesn't care about me. Oh, but because this didn't go the way I wanted, God must not really be at work in my life. 
And how many other times have you gone through and the next set of circumstances, you look back behind you and you see all the fingerprints and footprints of God and you say, I may not have seen it then, but now I understand there was another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the water holding back the seas. And just because my eyebrows got a little singed and my shoes got a little muddy, I may have forgot it then, but now I finally see. You see, at the first sign of trouble, the Israelites are tempted to turn back because what's known and comfortable is often a lot easier than what's unknown and uncomfortable. Even when God is leading you through the valley, Guess what? Nobody wants to walk through the valley. But the shepherd will lead us through it in order that we might see that God really can do what we want Him and ask Him to do. There's a mantra we say at our church that we pray believing that God can. We ask that God will and we trust that God loves us no matter what. Some of us need to be reminded in these situations when our impulse is to say, it's just better to go back there, go back to what's known. It's, it's, it's an invitation for you to imagine that God actually can do something when you feel like there's no other impulse or way forward. The first thing you need to do is expand your imagination to what God can actually do. And if you get that far, you can say, okay, God, I'm trying to believe that you can even do more than I can ask or imagine, so I'm going to ask that you would do it. That's the next step. Oh, that this church and these kids would ask, 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 ask. And when or if we don't get what we want, we trust that God loves us no matter what. In doing this, what we're doing is turning worrying into praying. Some of us need to turn our worries into prayers. This is another mantra of ours. This is what Paul says in Philippians. Cast all your anxieties and cares and burdens onto Him because He cares for you. Oh, that you would turn your worrying into praying. And when you do that, here's another TNC mantra for you. You can resolve to involve God in your fears and your panic and your circumstance. Did you notice that the Israelites at this moment did not involve God? The only two feasible options for them were these. You ready? Slavery in Egypt or death in the desert. They're looking at the sea. They see no other option. The only way forward is through the sea. The only way backward is certain death. So the only two options they could see is slavery in Egypt and death in the desert. I think God wants to enlarge our imagination and enlarge our creativity. And I think that the more we resolve to involve God in our fears and our panic and our circumstance, then you can begin to see, oh, He already is involved. Oh, He already is with us. Oh, even when I grumbled and I blew it and I messed up and I feel like I'm not worthy and, and He didn't leave me after all? The more we pray believing God can, asking that God will, and trusting that God loves us no matter what, we can turn our worrying into praying. 
which is resolving to involve God in all of our hurts, all of our hangups, all of our habits, and step after step, even when it seems impossible, God shows you what's possible because his compassion and his love will never fail you or leave you, even if your situation looks bleak. So often we say, why God? And a better question is, where God are you? And if you're still enough, you can hear the voice say, right here with you. So the invitation then is to remember who God is and what He's done. And then remind yourself of this early and often. You want to front load and get yourself settled on a foundation of who you know God to be so that when the circumstances happen, you won't let them tell you what God is like because you've already sorted that out. Would you remember who God is and what he's done? Would you do something for me if you have a journal, if you have something you're taking notes on? Would you write who I know God is and then have another space that says, what has God done? And you don't need to write an essay, but you can write at least a few things that you're certain of who he is and what he's done. I've shared with you before that the longer I go in my journey with Jesus and in pastoral ministry, there are fewer and fewer things that I'm actually certain of. But watch. But the small number of things that I am certain of, I'm becoming increasingly so. I know that God is love. I know that God looks like Jesus. And I know that the Holy Spirit is at work bending all things toward the renewal of the universe. Who is God? What has God done? Would you remember and remind yourself early and often? A lot of times when I'm preaching, the difficult part of my week is finding a story or an illustration that helps illuminate what I'm trying to get at, which is why I throw Emma and Nora under the bus so often. And this week I thought, I'm going to share two stories, and they're stories you already know, because I want to remind us, and I want us to remember what God has done in two dear brothers this week and last. And when I was thinking about this idea of who God is and what He's done and getting that settled before the circumstances send us into a tizzy, I think about a phone call I received last spring. And I remember where I was because I was pulling up to a childhood friend's house in Lake Highlands and I hadn't been there in a while. and Bud calls, and he tells me that he's been listed officially. And this is something that has been on the radar for a long time. Right, Bud? Who's listening? And every little while, he would go up and he'd do the test. He's like, this is it. This is it. Oh, it's not it. But this past spring, it was it, and he was listed. And it was something that, to even get to this point, Pastor Bud and Robin had discerned And we said, you know, there's really not a thus saith the Lord on this. He was waiting for this clear call to say, boom, go for it or don't. But what Pastor Bud and Robin did, and as we were talking and praying, is we found this little phrase in the book of Acts that said, you know, when they were discerning these situations, in Acts they said it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit. And we're just going to have to walk the rest in trusting ourselves to God's care. 
And so Bud had gotten to this point because he said it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit. And when he called me, I was kind of surprised at how my impulse was, I don't know, a mix of grief and what and surprise and shock. And Bud says, no, man, God's got this. And I said, aren't I supposed to be saying that to you? And he says, I'm telling you that I've already settled this, that we're just going to entrust ourselves to God's care no matter what happens. So when last Sunday, Jason and Becky were over because they brought us groceries, and we were watching the Cowboys because they're rocking and rolling, and we get this phone call that Bud is going in for a transplant, I won't tell you that when he saw Sherry and when he saw Sid and Kathy and they saw Robin, that he didn't have any fear or any concern because it's natural and it would be crazy if he didn't. But you know what he had more of? Trust in his good shepherd. Even in those moments, because he had resigned himself to the care of the one who is love and who is good, and when all the circumstances and the statistics conspired against us to say that there's a 50-50 shot, he's even going to make it through Monday morning. That's when Jason texted and said, I guess with God, it's always 100%. And yes, Pastor Bud has a journey set in front of him, but can we all... what? Say and name what you've all felt and prayed for and thanked God for this week that God has already brought him over mountains. Plural. Can we say now what a miracle it is that less than a week on, he's been off of oxygen for four days? And for how long is, have you seen him with the cannula there and the oxygen tank by his side? Can we stop and say, God, this is who you are. This is what you've done. His oxygen levels are at 96, 97%, even as he's sitting in the hospital recovering, which are higher than they've been in years. Can we stop and say, thank you, God, because the disease that brought him to this place, they've yet to find any traces of it remaining and lingering in his body. Can we stop and praise God for the fact that He's still praying for you and longing to see you, and He's just loving God through it because God has loved Him through it. He has a long journey, but God has brought Him through these mountains. He resolved months ago of who God is and what God has done, and He entrusted Himself to the care of the shepherd. So when we get that text at 4.30 in the morning, Monday, what else can we say but thank you, God, you've done it again. And it doesn't mean that every transplant and every step and every way, but what it does mean is that God will never cease to be good and that He's not still at work renewing all things. Because we put our faith into God who's stronger than even death, so even if it goes the way we didn't want, we can still say your love and your life is stronger than death itself, and so we give you praise. This is what it looks like to entrust ourselves to the care of the shepherd. And it's easier to do on this side 
But let's put ourselves back in that space between a rock and a hard place with our enemies hot on our tails and uncertainty set before us. Would you put yourself in this scene again in the crowd or maybe you're Moses or maybe you're standing next to Moses and you hear and get a sense that the enemy is fast approaching and you're looking over your shoulder to the Red Sea and you're wondering what in the world happens next? What in the world is Moses going to say? So would you hear these words? And what I want you to do is in your own situation or in this scene, would you place yourselves somewhere with ears to hear and eyes to see as you hear Moses respond to a people who are shook and wondering what's next? And would you listen for a word or phrase that catches your attention and perhaps even inspires or encourages you even now? Would you hear the next two verses? Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. What word or phrase jumps out at you? Still. What else? The Lord will fight for you. Deliverance. Which is another word for salvation. What else? You'll never see the Egyptians again. We'll see. You will see. What else? Do not be afraid. Stand firm. What would you do hearing these words? My impulse is to build a boat. (laughs) Right? When the second impulse here, too often our reaction is panic. When the invitation is to stillness. It's one thing to hear these words. It's another to get them in your bones and live accordingly. If I heard those words, I'm not sure I would have received them the way you have here this evening. I would be building a boat. What would you turn and say to your friend beside you? Are you serious? The Lord will fight for us? What does that even look like? I've never even seen God. Are you serious? Are you saying this guy? Are you for real right now? Moses? What would you feel? When you heard that word or phrase that stood out to you. Mark, what would you feel if you're sitting there as the enemies are bearing down and the sea is stretched before you and it says, just be still? This is amazing. He hasn't yet. But you know what's interesting is they've seen him at work in the last few weeks. You'd want to say, I guess I've seen him, but what is he going to do next? I think that panic may be the natural reaction, but the clear invitation is to stillness. He says, don't be afraid. Aaron, he says, stand firm. What's interesting about stand firm is it's not fight or flight. It's steal yourself and get ready. Stand grounded in hope. Fight or flight, neither. Stay your ground. And how many of you are like, what? 
How many of you in your circumstance right now, you want to bail or you want to storm ahead? What's the difference between walking on dry ground through the sea or getting stuck in the mud like Pharaoh's best and brightest? What's the difference? You ready? The answer's on the screen now. The difference is storming ahead or being led. The thing about standing firm and neither fight nor flight is you're letting God do the work, letting God fight for you, and you're ready to move when He invites you to move. But how often do we want to take the hill or start swimming or building a boat in our situation and circumstance? Then he says, be still. Some of us hear this and we're like thinking Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Let me tell you about Exodus 14 and Psalm 46. It's not a word of comfort. It's a word that grabs us by the shoulders, shakes us, douses us with cold water and says, still, silence, hush. That's what he's saying in this passage. You want to storm ahead? You want to bail? Still, hush, that's enough. How does this change your perception and your feeling now? One of the things that I'm trying to think through is getting to this point of stillness and hush sooner. When our impulse is panic, sometimes your impulse, if you're in a relationship, is anger and conflict. Let me offer this to you. This is how I've been thinking about it and teaching my kids this week. If you light a match, a match is going to do what it's supposed to do. It's going to burn. It's going to be angry. It's going to give warmth. Understand this. In your relationships with God and your relationships with others, you're allowed to feel what you're allowed to feel. Panic is natural. Fear is natural. Anger is natural. But here's there's a moment where it's going to burn your fingers or you're going to throw it and it's going to burn your house down. You have to work that space and bring yourself to enough awareness to hear God grab you by the shoulders and say, blow it out. That's enough. I really believe that this is part of what it means that Israel has to learn that it's going to take them generations because they're going to have more enemies and God is going to say, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Isaiah 30. And he says, but you would have none of it. You want to let the match burn down. You're going to burn yourself. You're going to burn your house down. And he says, enough. You've got to blow it out and let me do the working and leading. In your relationship, whether it's marriage or otherwise, this is a vital tool for you. Sometimes the match is going to burn, and before you go and burn it out on your partner, would you blow it out? Would you collect yourself? Would you be still? Because ultimately, God allows us to cry out. God allows us to burn up. But at a certain point, if you're walking with Him, He's going to lead you more and more to where stillness becomes a more natural response than rage and panic and fear and spiraling. I really believe that the longer we walk with Jesus, I hope He's growing in us the muscle that says, okay, this is crazy, this is crazy, I don't get it, but like a weaned child, Psalms, I'm going to quiet and content myself even when it doesn't make sense. It's not passivity, it's trust. This is what we're after. What's the difference? Storming ahead or being led. Do you know that the sea crossing took all night? 
So how did they walk it? One step at a time. We like to think that this miraculous passing was just a stroll in the park. It was dark, it was crazy and loud and chaotic, and it took all night. But the only way they can walk is one step at a time. Rahman, my second story, is showing me what it looks like to walk one step at a time. After his four-wheeler accident, put him into a tree and broke his leg and broke his shoulder and messed him up pretty good. He gets care flighted to a hospital. He spends a week in the hospital. He gets discharged Thursday evening, and he came home, quote-unquote, to our house. And man, was that a sweet time. It wasn't quite home-home, but Amy and the girls and so many of you all, through your generous contributions and gifts and prayers, just made it feel like home. I said last week, you know what it feels like when you just know you're prayed for. So he comes home Thursday. He takes his first true steps Friday, a week and a day after the accident, a week after surgery. He didn't walk for a week. Now we stand here on Saturday. It's the first time he's worn real shoes in two weeks. But from Saturday today and last Friday when he took his first steps, each day stronger, each day more, and each day more and more jokes where he says, at 2 a.m. you're going to be real surprised when I walk up those stairs knocking on the door asking if I can say hi and get some water. And so sometimes he walks past our stairs and I see him trying to do this. And he goes, eh? Eh? And he starts to lift his foot up and he starts to put it on the steps. And I said, dude... But the thing is this, so often we want to start storming up the steps. We want to walk steps 8, 9, and 10. And God is saying, look, man, today is all we have. This moment is all I've given. We need to work through step one. I think this is something else with our relationships, with our jobs, with whatever the sea ahead of us looks like. Even the greatest moments of transition and salvation are still Worked out one step at a time. Our journey with Jesus is walked one step at a time. You say, man, I'm not as compassionate and forgiving and gracious and patient as I want to be. And we say, what's the next right step? So much of pastoral ministry is just sitting with people and saying, man, all this sounds like steps 8, 9, and 10. What's step 1 that God is inviting you to? And so the invitation number two, when panic is really a move toward stillness, I would say this, lift your eyes, still your soul, and take your step one at a time. Sometimes when we get that phone call on a Thursday evening that your friend is care flighted, all you say is, God, we need you, and you blast the church And you see everyone saying, praying, 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 praying. And when you can't fix it or do the surgery, you got to sit in the waiting room and you've got to sit at your jobs with Pastor Bud and Pastor Ramon. 
never far in your thoughts. And when you think of them, you bring them to your attention. You become present to God's presence and you say, Lord, have mercy and help. And when you're facing down that meeting or that next step, would you sit just long enough to get grounded into your center? The invitation is not panic, it's stillness. Would you still your soul and only then, once you're still, make sure you have your balance, then you take your step one at a time. What's the next right thing? Whatever that sea of uncertainty is before you, wherever you lack imagination for what God will do next, don't worry about steps 8, 9, and 10. Lift your eyes off of yourself and your own insecurities, your own panic, your own fear. Lift your eyes to where your help comes from. Get your balance long enough before you take the next right step. And the final thing I'll say as we close is this. Notice that Israel let God fight for them. They walked They were led together. This week, it was remarkable to see this church be the church. To pray for Jason. To pray for Ramon. To pray for Bud. And then to put it to action. To bring food. To send money. To go to the Riddell's house and rip out carpet and prepare their house for his arrival home so that he might have tile and a better place to land. It is remarkable to be the church together. And though this road may take all night, and though we know not the next steps, 8, 9, and 10, we thank God for the mountains that He's brought us through and the new path He's forging ahead. And may we walk with Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this reminder that even in difficulty and situations when our impulse is to let our circumstance tell you who you are, would you remind us that you are good when our impulse is to panic? Would you get our attention and invite us to stillness and quiet confidence in you. Would the words that was read or sung or shared be an inspiration and a reminder to seek you and find you and follow you on the way that you've mapped ahead of us, one step at a time. We thank you for Jesus who has brought us from death to life and into relationship with one another, calling us deeper and further into love of you and our neighbor. Please bless us and keep us. Surround us and sustain us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.